0: Thank you, worship team. Good morning, High Point. My name is Femi Shekoya. I'm one of the elders here, and I'll be reading the scripture for today. The scripture today can be found in Ephesians 3. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 14 through 21. It's can be found on page 1778 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Ephesians chapter 3, starting from verse 14. is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord written for his people.
1: The church taking root in the city of Ephesus, the second largest city in the Roman Empire of the first century. um, It says the Apostle Paul was in the city for two years lecturing in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And it was sort of the first seminary experience. I'm sure those people got a lot more than I got in three years at seminary. And um, it says that through that all of Asia, or read western Turkey, heard the word of the Lord. And I've always hoped that a church that I was a part of would be kind of like that. That'd be a place where people would learn deeply the gospel and that people would then go to all kinds of places because it would be that kind of city. It'd be just a place like Ephesus where people just go from that city to other places. And Madison is kind of that city. People don't stay here very long usually, right? Um, one of the people that we get to send out this week is Minohar. Um James, he's gonna come up here so we can pray for him because he went to play volleyball with some of his evangelistic friendships. And he broke himself while playing volleyball right before he was about to travel internationally. Um, he hurt his knee and um, now he's got to go all over India doing seminars and um, standing and preaching and all that. So, um, and he's going with his whole family. So they're, they're all going. Um, Jasmine's parents haven't seen, I think, any no, mom hasn't seen some of the kids. Neither parents have seen... Um, Joshua except for her dad. So like it's gonna be family reunion and a lot of ministry. And so why don't we pray for them as they go in this hobbled state that God would give them an extraordinary spiritual power. Okay, so please pray with us. God, we lift up Manohar and Jasmine and the kids of you, Jason and Jonathan, and we pray, Father, that you would bless them with spiritual power in their inner being, like this passage says. We pray that Christ would dwell in their hearts richly through faith and that you would fill them to be rooted and established in love. And we pray that they would be able to communicate and convey those things and those gifts to people throughout India and in all of the sites and all of the places that the pastors that would come and their families, that they would be enriched greatly by your fatherhood and what you accomplished through your power in us, that they would be able to grasp the width and breadth and height and depth, that knowledge that surpasses knowledge, which is the love of Christ, and that churches and people and neighborhoods and villages and parts of India would be changed by your gospel through it and that they would be faithful in all these things. We pray that you would take care of all of their physical needs. We pray that you would heal Manohar's knee powerfully and strengthen him and make him able to do all these things. We pray that people would be willing to serve him and to ease whatever burden he might be carrying. And we pray, God, that the kids would do well on planes and in travel, that you would be with them in all of the stress of their traveling. We pray that you'd protect them. But mainly we pray that you would allow their time to be fruitful and effective, and that many donors that have received letters to give financially to, to pay for all these seminars in the expense of them, we pray that you'd well their hearts up with generosity to pay for those expenses, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Bless you guys. Okay. I spent most of this week in Canada with my son, fishing. The fish did not cooperate. There were forest fires that made it hard to breathe while fishing, but, um, you know, other than that, it was awesome. And Jerry Hohausen did food, so that was a real highlight. Okay, so this passage that we're looking at this morning is a really difficult one in this because it's such a magisterial passage. We could literally spend a sermon on every single phrase in it, and we wouldn't do it justice. We wouldn't plumb its depths. We wouldn't see all that was there. Um, and so it's also difficult because some of the truest things in our lives are sometimes some of the most difficult to feel because we handle them so commonly. For, for example, when my kids were younger, I, I actually sometimes tried to get them not to listen to the Christian radio station, which is kind of weird in some ways because you're like, well, why wouldn't you want your kids to listen to Christian radio? That's your Christian. Wouldn't you want to listen to Christian radio? But there's, there's, yes, but there's also a sense in which if you listen to it non-stop, it, it almost makes holy things common. You know, like you're always just kind of listening to important cosmic words about Jesus in the background while you clean. You know, like there's, there's something about taking things of extreme importance and like normalizing them to yourself so that they don't really do anything to you anymore. It, one of the, um, on, I have to turn this on. When I did internships with um, people that were going to go to college in Linhaven when I was in Florida, one of the aphorisms that they had to learn in the first week was that anything can sound ridiculous if said in the right tone of voice. Part of that is because in in the millennial generation in particular, but this is I think carrying through into whatever other generation we're into now, um, sarcasm is kind of a big thing. I I don't know if that was true in my generation too, I guess, so it's not a new thing. But one of the things that happens, though, is people sneer at stuff, and they think they're making an argument, and they don't realize that they're just sneering. And so it's very easy to think that because you've made something sound ridiculous, because you've said something sarcastic, that you've made some persuasive argument that should move people, when in reality you can take anything, not just the stuff you like to sneer at, but the stuff you wish nobody would sneer at, that you believe in very strongly. Listen, if I just sneer at it in the right sarcastic tone of voice, it will sound ridiculous. I mean, the, the whole daily show is built on that premise, right? And so, um, when we come to a passage like this that is focused on the love of Christ, it's really easy for us to experience that axiom that is at the heart of everything that we believe in, everything that we hold dear as, as believers. And for the, sti- the statement, the love of Christ, or the love of Jesus, or that Jesus loves you, it can feel really common, and it can not move us at all, And the very point of this whole passage, okay, the whole point of this passage is that the only way for us to experience the fullness of God in our own spiritual life with God and together as the whole church, it says, right? He says, uh, my, my goal is that all of you together would experience this, right? Is for us to know that which surpasses knowledge and that thing of which we cannot know the height and breadth and length and depth of, which is the love of Christ. Right? And so it's really simple to say what this passage means, that what we really need is the strength to see and know the love of Christ. That's what we really need. What we really need, whatever you think you need, what you really need, your number, the one number, one most important thing you really need is the strength to see and know the love of Christ. And in the way the Apostle Paul prays this, he tries to make clear that that strength only comes in the process of pursuing Christ. Right? So, um, the heart of this passage is in verse 18. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and look at it. He says, all these things so that you will be strong enough. Okay, so I'm reading from my own literal translation. Okay, so one of the things I do— I, th- that part of the issue with the NIV translation is um, the word pray is nowhere in the original text. Okay, the reason why the, the, word, the words I pray are in the text twice in the Bible that you're reading is because this whole thing is only two sentences. Verses 14 to 19 is just one sentence. And then verses 20 21 are, are one sentence. And so that's kind of a long sentence in English, the way we write, right? It's not that long for Greek, but it's kind of long for English. And so what they did is they split it up into three sentences, so it's easier for you to read, right? And so all of the I praise come from the fact that he starts with saying, this is why, or on the basis of this grace, literally, I bend my knees, right? Bending his knees is a euphemism for prayer— And so all of this is a prayer. And so then the translators insert the words, I pray. Right? But they're nowhere in the text. But it is all a prayer. So it's not a bad translation. Okay? So as he goes through, he's talking about what he's praying and how. And the reason why it's a long sentence is because everything is conditional on the next thing. He's trying to say, I'm praying this, so that this, so that this, so that this, so that this. Because he's teaching in his prayer Like, why is he writing his prayer? Why doesn't he just pray his prayer and write his theology? Right? You see, because for the Apostle Paul, his theology and his prayers are the same thing. He prays his theology because his theology is just what he believes about God, right? And so he's praying what he believes about God. And the reason why he would write down his prayer is so that we would understand his theology of how God responds to prayer and how that changes and transforms us so that we would know the theology, the truth about how God changes and transforms us, so that we would do what better? This is participatory. Pray better. The reason he's writing down his prayer so that he shows us the theology of his praying is so that we would understand the truths of God related to prayer, so that we would pray better. It's the whole point of this passage. He writes his prayer, so that we, by learning from it, would pray better. Does that make sense? And what he says in this prayer is that we need, through God's power, to be strengthened. That's what he says. So he uses the word power twice, and he uses some verb for being strengthened twice. So he says, so I'll start in 16. And I mean this is a literal translation, okay, so it'll sound a little different than what you have in your Bible, but this is literally how it flows in the original language. Verse 16. So that he should give you, according to the riches of his glory, power to be strengthened through his spirit in your inner man, that Christ should be settled or dwell through faith in your hearts, in love, being firmly rooted and having the foundation established, so that you will be strong enough to apprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth to know that which surpasses knowledge, the love of Christ, so that you should be filled with all the knowledge, with all the fullness of God. When you look carefully at this, what, what he's saying is this is he saying what is necessary is for us to receive the, God, the power of God in a spiritual way to strengthen us so that in that strengthened state we would have the capacity to comprehend, to see and know the love of Christ. Okay? Now what that means is this. You may have heard the message that God loves you, and has loved you in Christ, and that Jesus loves you, and that you can be part of the love of Christ, and you may have believed that and become a Christian, and you have believed in the love of God and in the love of Christ, and you—that has saved you, right? And you—listen—you still may know nothing About the love of Christ. You see, we think because we we heard the message of the love of Christ and we heard the message of the cross, that we then comprehended it and then we believed it. Why would we have believed it if we hadn't comprehended it? Right? But why does the five-year-old accept Jesus? Right? They comprehend a little bit of it. It's enough to persuade them. I'm a sinner, mommy loves me, she tells me the truth. She tells me the Bible says that I'm a sinner. She even read it to me at bedtime. She read that Jesus loves me and died for my sins. That's a problem. That's a solution. (laughs) I receive that by believing it. Okay, I believe it, right? Does that kid believe in the love of Jesus? And the answer is, yes, of course they do. Is that love of Jesus, that conceptualization of the love of Jesus, going to carry them through college? No. In fact, that's why so many Christians lose their faith in places like college or when they go out for their first job or when they leave their youth group or when they leave home or whatever. Because they do believe in the love of Jesus, but their conceptualization of it is small and it fit another time in their life. And as they move into a more expanding time in their life, if their conceptualization, if their seeing and knowing of the love of Christ doesn't expand, their conceptualization will not be ready for the stresses and changes and details and problems and questions of that next era or that next problem or that next moment. Right? It's one of the reasons why your faith doesn't seem to be big enough for your marriage problems or to sustain you in your singleness or to help you love your job that feels like a dead end, or to deal with your addiction, or just the behavior you do over you can't seem to control, or why you can't seem to make the friends you want to make, or whatever problem you don't think Jesus is big enough for. It's not—the problem is not that Jesus isn't big enough for it. The problem is that your apprehension of the love of Christ is way too small, and the power that it produces that it sends up the roots and that it solidifies in the established foundation of love in your heart is too weak. It's too small. It's not big enough for the next thing. So in this passage what Paul says is, I am praying that God would so empower you inside you that you would have the strength to see and know the love of Christ. Not just in a general sense, not in just enough to convict you so that you'll believe to be saved, but so that it will so continually expand your inner person with wonder and adoration and enjoyment and praise and a sense of identity and character that it would be so expansive, so powerful, so increasing that you would have you would always be ahead of whatever problems were coming up. And so you would have the fullness of God, right? Now, what the passage literally says is, I want God to make you strong enough to see, to know what is unknowable, to comprehend the incomprehensible, right? And on some level, that feels like almost a contradiction in terms. How can you comprehend the incomprehensible, right? And there's a couple ways that you can think about this, right? Um, Because there are a number of ways something cannot be comprehensible, right? One is that the thing can be just inscrutable, like you can't make any sense out of it. But the other is that it can be so expansive that you can never really get your mind around it but your expanding knowledge of it is still strong, and it's just, and it's growing you. Okay, so for example, in Inscrutability, the 1998 bad writing winner um, was this paragraph. The move from a structuralist account in which capital is understood to structure social relations in relatively homologous ways to a view of hegemony in which power relations are subject to repetition, convergence, and re-articulation brought the question of temporality into the thinking of structure and marked a shift from a form of Althusserian theory that takes structural totalities as theoretical objects to one in which the insights into the contingent possibility of structure inaugurate a renewed conception of hegemony as bound up with the contingent sites and strategies of the rearticulation of power. Right? That's almost like reading an Old Testament genealogy, isn't it? Right. The wor- some the, of the worst writing in the world is written by some of the like most accomplished people. In fact, the, in these like bad writing um, contests, it's always acad- every single entry is from an academic. They're just the worst writers. Um, they really should all have writing coaches. Like every academic article from every discipline should be submitted through the English department. Because what else is the English department doing? Right. I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> so I'm just kidding. It's just more walls of, of hostility, right? Sorry. Um, but like th- that is inscrutable, okay? Like you read that and you're like, what in God's name does that mean? Means, now I, I assure you that in the author's mind, that paragraph is pregnant with meaning of 30 years of research and amalgamation of knowledge so that they inserted with every clause a deep and powerful meaning, right? And if they knew that I read their paragraph as an example of inscrutable nonsense, they would be deeply offended, and in some sense rightfully so, because to them it's not inscrutable at all. And God could easily have written a text for us and inspired a text that was much more difficult than that and 100% true about himself, right? And he didn't. He didn't. Because his goal was not to be inscrutable. His goal was to speak and show himself comprehensively to human beings. But comprehensively does not mean comprehensively. Like to comprehend and to see everything are not the same thing. And so what God is saying in this passage is, he's saying what needs to happen in us is that we need to see that there is an expansiveness to the love of Christ. Almost like, I mean, did you ever have this, I had this atheist professor in college who, on the first day of a history class, okay, why this is what you talk about on the first day of a history class, I don't know. But he went through all this mathematical stuff about how big the universe was, right? It's this many billions of miles, and this light years, and the blah, 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 blahs. And he, he like, he created a truly wonder-inspiring explanation of the vastness of the physical universe based on the physical theories of that time, which was now 20 years ago or something. And then he said, the idea that in a universe this vast that we mean something is ridiculous. Right? Well, I— First of all, just philosophically, that's complete non-sequitur. The one just just simply doesn't follow from the other. I mean, the idea that like I can't love my kids because I have a big job is just ridiculous, right? The, the the logic of the two don't equate at all. um, It sounds intelligent, but there's nothing intelligent to it at all. However, when you do look at astronomical realities, when you try to get a sense of how big the universe is, right, you're never gonna get your head around that, okay? The numbers are so big as to make as to say that they're just incomprehensibly large a wild understatement. You're just, you're just never gonna get your head around how many universes there are, how many stars there are, how big it is, how fast it's moving, how complicated the, like, inner physical theories of it are. You're just, you're never gonna get your head around that, right? But if you try, if you try, you will see real stuff and your view of the universe will expand. And it will be expansive to your mind and it'll be expansive to your heart. And you'll, you'll, you'll live in a bigger world. You'll, you'll, you'll be filled with a greater sense of wonder. You'll never get your head around it. But the more you know, the more expansive it is. And see, what you need to understand, what we all need to understand as deeply as possible about the love of Jesus and the love of Christ is that that is what our relationship to the love of Christ has to be. It has to be that we enter into the love of Christ by faith at some point on the basis of the amount we need to know to be persuaded. And at that point, we're a believer in Jesus. We belong to Christ. We're a Christian, right? And we're saved. And yet, we may know very little about the love of Christ. John Stott said it this way in his book, Baptism in Fullness. In that book, he was talking about fullness of the Holy Spirit, but it works with a fullness of the knowledge of Christ's love as well. If you have like a baby, and the baby takes in a full breath, their lungs are full of air, right? But if you take a adult, and they breathe in and fill their lungs with air, their lungs are full of air also. Both are full. But the amount of air in the two human beings is wildly different. Right? The baby doesn't take it anywhere near as much air to be full. The adult takes much more air in to be full. Does that make sense? Similarly, there is a a ability to comprehend. There is a way we conceptualize. There is how big our heart is. How big, how strong our inner man is. There is how we are rooted and established and loved. How how much we're established, how deep our roots go. That is the container in which the concept of the love of Christ will fill. And when Paul says, I want God to give you his power— by his spirit, in your inner person. What he's saying is, I, I want to expand your natural capacity to take in the beauty and the wonder of the love of God so that, because God's going to fill whatever size that is, whatever size that is, right? You're, whatever, what you're trying to know here is, is like incomprehensible in size, okay? So however big you can open that aperture, he's going to fill it. You're, you're going to be mind-blowingly filled with whatever opening you have in your spiritual aperture. And so if you are, if you have no spiritual imagination, no sense of spiritual wonder, if the conceptualization you have of Christ is exactly the same as when you believed in Jesus, and if you think that will carry you through all of life's difficulties, and if that's where you want to be, and if you feel comfortable doing that, your spiritual aperture is going to be super closed. Or if what you want to have your spiritual imagination pricked by isn't the love of Christ, but something else. You want to be the best at arguing about the philosophy of Jesus, or you want to—you want something else to be the heart of the wonder, other than the love of God as displayed in Christ. You're just—you're not going to be filled. You're not going to be filled. And you won't experience the fullness of God that you're heir to, that belongs to you, And you won't have the power to deal with any of the situations that you need to be strong for. And you won't enjoy it. You won't find suffering a blessing and an opportunity. You won't be—you won't really believe that God is being good to you. You'll think that God is constantly holding out on you. You'll feel entitled, unthankful, and ultimately you'll move more and more into self-justification. And it's decently likely at some point you will leave the faith, not because Jesus wasn't enough. You'll say it was because Jesus wasn't enough. You'll say it's because you tried Christianity and it didn't work. But what will actually happen is, because you wouldn't open your aperture, your view and ability to take in the love of Christ was so small, that your conceptualization of the love of Christ was so small, that you drew no energy or power from it. And as life became more difficult, and your conceptualizations of other things grew and became more difficult. Your conceptualization of Jesus was just too small and weak to deal with any of that, and you became emotionally overwhelmed and intellectually overwhelmed, such that Jesus couldn't solve your problems, and you gave up. You thought it was a philosophical problem, it was really a psychological problem, because you didn't actually listen to how you were supposed to grow strong in the grace of God, and in the power of God, which is just laid out for here in a couple of paragraphs. Now, I want to look at the five things—and yes, we will go fast through the five things— of like how, like how do you participate with that? Because all the verbs in this passage are all passive. God is doing it all, which I think is kind of the first thing. The first thing that we we have to do if we're going to actually open up our imaginations, open up the aperture of our imagination, and see more of the love of Christ so that it changes. That's what saves you better. It's not going to save you better. It's going to change you more. It's going to empower you more strongly. It's going to pull your spiritual roots down deeper so you're bringing up more of the the liquid life of the bread of the word of God and that the winds of suffering will not blow you over as easily. It's going to make you stronger. Right? That's That's what he's praying for. I'm praying that God will empower you so that you will be stronger, is what he says. But not just strong, strong enough to see. So the first thing to do is to pray like Paul. And you need to pray like this guy. We need to pray like this guy. Listen, most of you and and most of us are are we say we're Christians, but we're so secularized, really, in our hearts, in our worldliness, that we really think of prayer as like like an old fashioned or an obsolete kind of spiritual action, right? We're we're more emotionally drawn to things like. Meditation or like yoga or like stuff where like you don't have to rely on the immediate presence and activity of another personal spirit. Where you can really interact just with your with your own spirit and think about your own heart and think about how you're feeling and all you have to believe in is the existence of your own spirit to do it. That's why meditation is so much easier to engage in. Because you don't have to believe in the attendance and existence of this other spirit who is God. And you don't have to be as honest with your own spirit as you have to be with that spirit. But Christian faith in all of biblical religion is rooted fundamentally and most fundamentally in the spiritual actions of worship, that is adoring the God who is truly good and great, and prayer, speaking to and being shaped by and asking for help from the God who is there all of Christian faith is rooted first and foremost in believing that God is there, that he is sovereign and serious, and that he is loving and gracious and rich. And he is willing to attend to you. There's no spiritual action, no spiritual discipline, no spiritual belief in Christianity that doesn't start with that premise. And therefore there's no Christian faith that can be vibrant without a participation in prayer. And listen, I'm gonna just tell let me just be really straight with you, okay? I I'm not supposed to say S U C K. I'm really bad at prayer, okay? I I um I have a sleeping disorder that is very close to narcolepsy. So if I'm not interested, I like I fall asleep immediately. It's why in some counseling sessions I always drink tea, because if the person bores me, I literally will fall asleep if I'm not drinking something. Okay? It I and it doesn't mean if I drank during one of your counseling sessions, you were boring me. I just—it's a preemptive strike. Like, I—it—yeah, I'm—listen, I'm ser- listen up, serious, because it's your—it's the first time you're telling me, but I've heard your problem a thousand times because everybody's the same, right? And so, <laughs> so I, you know, I'm—so I'm drinking the tea because literally, if I am not engaged in something, I will literally fall asleep. I remember playing Barbies with my g- girls when they were like two, and this is the way it would constantly go. Daddy, wake up. <laughs> Daddy, wake up. You're, you're Ken right now. Okay. Okay. What are we doing? What do? okay Daddy, wake up. Like, I just—and so—and then in addition to that, like, I'm kind of—I'm like, I'm what people call ADD, like, pretty profoundly, but and not hyperactive. I'm narcoleptic. So, I like, I'm, my mind's going everywhere, and if I'm not engaged, I just fall asleep. Okay? <laughs> Try having a vibrant prayer life when that is the machine you're driving, okay? It's really hard, right? But like, listen, I'm terrible at praying. Like if you saw the the time chart of my prayer life, you would be appalled, okay? But listen, I will never give up seeking and striving to be a person of prayer, not because I'm good at it, but because it is the foundation of all spiritual practice in Christ. To acknowledge he's there, to acknowledge that he is serious and sovereign over everything, and that he's loving and rich and a father to me and attends to me, and there's no getting around being honest with him and being humble before him, and that that is my perfect frame. That is when I experience my truest self. That is when I'm least the flesh, in most my nature in Christ. At that moment, in that place, in that consciousness, with the conceptualizations that come at that moment, and I will never give up, no matter how bad I am, and neither should you. Okay, I don't care if you haven't prayed in 20 years. Just pray today. Because we have to learn to pray like Paul. Not just to do it, but to pray with all the assumptions that come in this passage. Does that make sense? The second thing is, you just need to open yourself up to God's power by his Spirit in your inner being. So the the language is the inner man. The man word is anthropos, which is the generic for humanity. So if like you have a feminist feel to you and you want to be like the inner humanity, that's fine. It's, it's a legitimate translation. But the inner man, to say inner man is kind of like, it means, it, it gets it, the conceptualization of you as a person, right? Your inner person. Who you are on the inside. That in that place, God wants to give you power, and, but that power is a spiritual kind of power, okay? Because we naturally have these misconceptions about what we want this to— how we want this power thing to go, right? We, we generally think he's unwilling to give it because we don't— it doesn't happen the way we want it to, right? We think we should see it's it has power or it's fake. It's just all in our heads. And we usually think it should change our circumstances fairly specifically, and all three of those things are actually false. And if you believe those things, it will undermine your confidence to pray, Right? Because if you pray and the, these are the things you want to happen, then they don't happen, because that's not how God does it. And then you're like, ah! Oh, and then you'll just stop praying, when in fact it was really the, your conceptualization, your aperture was really small, and you weren't seeing what he was really doing, right? God is not unwilling to give, right? Paul doesn't pray, I, I bend my knees before the Father, so that to the extent to which you're good Christians, God would respond to your good Christianness and your holiness by giving you his power, so that you could be even better. Because God likes to invest in good investments, right? That's, that's not what it says, is it, right? What the text says is, I bend my knees before the Father, right? And he says that he prays for us, but he says that it's on this basis, right? I kneel before the Father, from whom every family, or fatherhood is the literal word, for every fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you. Now, It says, I pray that out of his glorious riches— what it literally says in the original language is according to. Kata. It's according to. So you you see the justification for his prayer? The justification for his prayer has nothing to do with your godliness. Nothing to do with it. Okay? This is the justification for his prayer. God is the father of all, and especially the adoptive father of all who believe. He is your spiritual father. All all fatherhood of any kind— derives itself ultimately from God, right? The fundamental functions of fatherhood are provision and protection, okay? That's why the metaphor is used. Provision and protection. All fatherhood, every good father, everybody who thinks they're a good father, all of everything good that you've ever done derives itself from the one greater father who provides and protects for his creation, especially those who have turned to him in redemption. That's the basis of it. God's fatherly relationship to you. And then secondly, according to. So how much? Like in accordance with what? What parallels the generosity of God in prayer, right? And what it parallels is not your goodness, but his riches. Do you understand? His riches. That is the basis of his prayer, and that is the basis of the coming of his power. And so what the way that we let God, we embrace God's power doing that is A, you need to open yourself emotionally in your inner person to the power of God. You need to internally, and sometimes it helps if you pray. Like you literally pray to God and you say, God, I, I want to open myself up in this inner man, whatever that means, my inner person. I open myself up entirely to your power that I know is going to come by your spirit. You're not going to change everything in my life. You're actually going to come spiritually inside of me, and you're going to strengthen my natural capacities. You're going to make me stronger in what you created me to do already. So I may not even feel you. Because you're going to be working through affections and abilities and things that are part of my nature that I already do. So it's not going to feel completely different. It's just going to be more strength. So one of the things that we struggle with in sort of low church Protestantism is we understand something of the power of God contravening something. Like somebody's sick and the power of God comes in and heals them. It like reverses the course of the thing, right? One of the things that we struggle with, though, is when the grace of God or the power of God is actually working with us. Meaning, you be like, well, the Bible says there's nothing good in us. Yes, in a different context, though, right? We have a divinely given nature in the image of God, with all the faculties and capacities and abilities that human beings were meant to have to do everything that God wanted us to do in the world. And all of that nature still resides in us. It is infected and hurt by sin, but it is different from sin. And there are many ways in which the grace of God isn't just going against our sin, but it's coming in and empowering our nature. When God is empowering our nature, we often don't feel it because it feels like stuff we already have. You've you've already felt like the feeling of love, of affection towards somebody else, and the desire and willingness to make a sacrifice for them. Well, when the power of God comes in through the Spirit in your inner man, what that feels like is more of that. A stronger version of that. And so that would feel completely natural. You'd be like, I just, yeah, I just really, I mean, I was just really willing to do that today. Right? I already come to worship, but I just, I was like really into it today. Or like, it, it would just feel like, the best you more. And you see, if you don't recognize that strengthening as the power of God, then anytime the power of God is working with your nature, you won't recognize the activity of God. And yet, that activity is the most important in some ways. When the Spirit of God is going against your sin, the negative action of the Spirit of God, you feel it more because you feel the conviction. You're like, oh, I did that wrong. Oh Lord. You are so right about that, and you feel the againstness of the power of God. And because of that, it's strong, because it, it's going against you, and you're like, I need to repent. I need to change. That's so right. And you you change, right? But when the power of God goes with you and goes into your now redeemed nature, he's now pulled away the infection of sin, and now he's coming into the divine images in you, and he's refilling it. He's remaking it. He's filling your nature. He's perfecting nature. Well, that just feels like you being you, just better which can lead to pride, if you're not careful. And so for many of us, God is working in your life in very powerful ways, but because your conception of the working of the power of God, your conception of the working of the Spirit of God, is only the against working of the Spirit of God, and not the with working of the Spirit of God. There's all kinds of ways God is working in you that you don't even recognize, and so you're not happy about, and you don't feel assured by, and you don't feel, you don't feel like, oh, this is so great and you don't recognize it as the love of Christ, and so your increased imagination and seeing all the workings of the love of Christ is not expanding, and so you don't have that deep-rooted power, and you feel tired when God is working in you. Right? Okay, I need to keep moving because we're kind of running out of time here. Okay. Three, seek to establish the dwelling of Christ in your heart through faith. Right? So the next, he says, the first thing is, I'm praying for God's power to be released in your inner man, and then he says that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, right? So the next thing to do is to respond to the initiation of God that Christ should dwell in your heart. What does that mean? Well, it just, it means it's his, it's his, like your heart is his home. And it, it belongs to him, and he should live there freely, and you should seek to rearrange things in your life and heart in hospitality to him. So think of like all of your passions and interests and hopes and dreams as furniture in his house. Right? One of the one of the things that is not fun for guys who get married, especially if they've been bachelors for a while, is what women think that they're automatically allowed to do with your stuff the minute you marry them. Right? Like my wife was nice about this. She like was like— telling me before we were even married, like, how she was gonna cut my hair, and that she was gonna get rid of all my furniture, and that things were gonna change, because she—it was gonna be her house, too, and she wasn't gonna live like this. And I had to—I knew before I—but right, so I've had men be like, I married this woman, and she thinks she can get rid of my deer antlers, and she thinks she can, like, cook with something besides cast iron, and like, I don't know what she thinks she's doing, right? When you come to Jesus, your heart the seed of all the interactions of your inner life, all your hopes and dreams and passions and character and like foibles and failures and all— like all the stuff swirling around inside of you, your emotions, how you think— that is furniture in Jesus' house, right? And your job is to say, Jesus, where do you want this couch? Where are we putting this? Do we still want this picture here? Or are we getting rid of this picture? And you got to let him dwell there and rearrange things. And, ma- and some of that you will not like. Right? But that's the metaphor. You seek to have him dwell there. Right? And that's the first step after just being open to the Spirit. Open yourself to the Spirit. What's the Spirit going to do? He's going to come and be like, let's work on Jesus dwelling in here. That's what he's going to do. And then you're going to work on that. And then the next thing is going to be to draw your life from and order your character around love. Right? So the next thing he says is that in love— you would be rooted and established. Okay, so there's two metaphors there. One is a tree's roots, and the other is building the foundation of a building. Do you see see the difference there? So the roots are what are the foundation of the tree, but they hold the tree in place, but they also bring up all the life and nutrients. The foundation of a building is what keeps the whole building from falling down. Okay, the whole building of your faith stands on the depth of the conception of your understanding of what the love of Christ really means. Not anything else. You'd be like, well, Nick, well, what what about—what about—it's truth and grace. What about truth? Yeah, all the truths about the love of Christ are primary. I love truth. Listen, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who loves truth more than me, okay? Like, if I could, like, do 10 points to truth and grace, and I could do whatever I wanted, and Jesus was not dwelling in my heart, I'd put like all 10 on truth and zero on grace, okay? That was— I, I'm just that guy, okay? And But listen, what this passage teaches is that the foundation of what you believe and who you are and your character and where you draw your life has to be focused on the love of Christ. Right? And then it has to be done together with all the saints. Because you see, if you don't seek to do those things with all the saints, two things are going to happen, they're going to poison it. One is it's going to become too theoretical, right? Unless you get around other sinful people who are different from you, you can talk a good game about the power of God dwelling in you, and, and Christ dwelling richly in your heart through faith, and love being the roots and foundation of your soul, and you can go to Sunday schools and talk about that, and like quote verses. But until you're around annoying people, of other generations, other races, other economic groups, who vote for different people in political elections, who watch different TV shows that think your TV shows are stupid, who like social media, who hate social media, who, you know, like, people. Until you're doing it around people, you're just playing, man. You're, like, who knows if what you're doing is good or bad? Who knows if you're real or false? Nobody knows. It's not until the whole church is trying to apprehend it together that we know whether it's theoretical or real. Secondly, if you don't do it with other people, it becomes too introspective in a way that begins to poison you from the inside, right? Introspection is a good thing, especially in conversation with God in prayer, connected to his external truths, interacting with your internal truths. But if you don't do it in prayer, and you're just trying to do these things on the inside of you— receive the power of God, and Jesus dwelling in you, and loving, and like it's all inside of you— there's an amount of introspection that becomes too self-focused and too self-acknowledging and not self-forgetful, and it increases in pride, and it begins to poison itself. And there's a lot of that in our culture. In our culture, there's a lot of, we're only outside to post things on social media and say everything's fantastic, and then we're in our heads the rest of the time. And there's there's a very profound negative effect about being in your head all the time and being in yourself all the time. It's a terrible thing. One of the worst things that you can do to a human being is put them in solitary confinement. Is separate them from everyone else. But one of the first things people want to do when they get emotionally hurt is what? Separate themselves from everybody else. They give themselves the worst punishment a human being can receive when somebody has punished them by hurting them. In order for us not to poison ourselves with excessive introspection or to— give ourselves the pride of thinking we're loving when everything's just merely theoretical. It has to be done together with all the saints, which is important because what's the application of this passage anyway? It's coming out of chapter three, the breaking down of all the walls of hostility, right? This is still about race. It's still about the differences in the church and the Jews and the Gentiles and all these different people and how they're never going to get along. This is all still about that. It's all about how if you see the love of Christ, its height and breadth and width and depth, you can then look at humanity— and you can see that the love of Christ, if you see all humans together, all their differences, and you say, how does the love of Christ rest on this mass of different people? And the answer is, go as far width-wise as you can go. Go as far breathwise wise as you can go. Go as high as you can go, and deep as you can go, and make a big sphere. And how many of those people does it include in the single tribe, the one man, the one new humanity, reconciled to the one Father in Christ? And the answer is all of all of them, but only if—listen, so how do we—listen, I'm a very racist person, okay? Like, I was playing tennis—like pickleball with some people, where my my neighborhood around the park we go to is not very white anymore. It's, it's mostly Latinos, Indians, a lot of Indian people from subcontinent of India, and, and now a lot of uh, African Muslims. So I'm walking home. There's no white people. It's all like Latino people, and like—well, there's like old liberal curmudgeonly white ladies, which I like them the least, frankly, just naturally, right? And so, like, I don't like anybody around me, right? I'm walking home from Pickleball, and I'm like, I na- my natural tribal spirit is like, who are these people? And can I even talk with them? And why? They don't look me in the eye. None of them do. And like, do we have a community, and what's going on here? And like, we're all naturally tribal creatures, right? And, and we lay out our tribalness. And see, it's, it's very easy then, even just to make your church your tribe. Right? And to like sort of be like church racist. Like only the people in our church are part of the one family. It's one of the reasons why a lot of churches won't work with other churches, because they come to like one disagreement. We're like, we don't share a culture. We don't share a faith. There's no way we can work together. It's one of the reasons why I intentionally have committed to connecting with other churches that aren't historically Baptist churches. Like if you look at the other churches that we partner with in the city of Madison, none of them are historically Baptist churches. You know why? It's intentional. Harold Ravers Church is the Worldwide Pentecostal Association, okay? That's, that's real different than fundamentalist Baptists. right? But part of the purpose of that is, like, forcing myself over and over again to rework that sense of tribe and belonging and who's my people and who isn't my people and how do I connect with those folks and how big— and the only thing that's ever going to save me, listen— Fox News isn't going to save me. CNN isn't going to save me. There's no think tank that's going to save me. There is no political ideology. There's no cultural ideology. There are no platitudes about diversity that are ever going to save me from that. The only thing that is ever going to save me from the twisted nature of my tribalism to the good natural sense of my tribalism receiving all of God's tribe and family is a growing imagination surrounding the expanding aperture and seeing the wonder of the height and breadth and depth and width of the love of Christ, and to comprehend the incomprehensible, and to see what cannot be seen, and to be expanded day by day, and for my conception of the love of Christ to change every moment, every day, to something wider and stronger and deeper and broader. And, and only then will I have roots that go so deep that I am bringing up the living water from the very foundations of the world. Only then can I overcome this. Only then can I be encouraged about the power of God working in me. And only then can we be the church in which God will say, all of my fullness dwells there. God, um, we, we open ourselves to you all who agree with a sufficient amount of what I've said to open ourselves. We open ourselves to your power, not to get us more money. We all want more money, but not to get us more money. We all want better health, but not to get us better health. We open ourselves to your power given by your Spirit in the inner humanity of our souls and our personhood and our hearts to be strengthened so that Christ could really dwell in there, so that we could be really rooted and established in love. And so that then, and only then, by growing in those things, will you then raise up in us all together, together with all the saints, the power to see the height and breadth and length and depth, to comprehend the incomprehensible, the love of Christ. And we turn to you, the one who it says in that verses 20 and 21, the one who can do more than we can ask or imagine. Oh God, please do more than we ask or imagine. Our prayers are small and simple-minded. Our conceptions are narrow. Open us up, Lord. Please open up a spiritual imagination in us. Help us to know that which is not ever knowable, but could be known so much more. Help the phrase, that axiom, Jesus loves you, the love of Christ, obliterate us with beauty every day. And let us be together the dwelling place of your fullness in Christ like we're meant to be. We pray in his name.